Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm the Deputy Director and the Provost, so it's a very great pleasure to welcome you all to the school this evening uh, for tonight's talk on the inextricable links between banking and the economy by Antonio Otto Osorio, who, as most of you will know, is the group chief executive of Lloyd's Banking Group. Now, there are one or two sort of housekeeping details that I need to go through with you very quickly. Antonio is going to speak for about 30 minutes, or as he told me just now, 28 minutes. And then we're going to have a question and answer. So we'll have quite a lot of time for that. So a lot of time for active engagement. Uh, now is the time, please, if you could just make sure that your phones are turned to silent. You're very welcome to tweet if you want to through the course of the evening. And the hashtag is at LSE Lloyds. What I do want to make clear, though, is that tonight's event is a very special one. It's not really been opened up to the press or to members of the public. We are intending to podcast the entire event, including the question and answers afterwards. But Antonio's here really to speak to us as members of the LSE community and in a certain sense off the record. So I would just ask any alumni that are connected to the press or any students that are working for the press, maybe you're connected to the Times, as I believe some of you are, if you could please tweet, if you would do so in your personal capacity, that would be very helpful. Antonio, it's a great pleasure to have you here uh, at LSE this evening. We've just been exchanging a couple of remarks in the green room and learning about Antonio's particular interest in scuba diving and uh, Costa Rica, in which I have a sort of tangential interest. What many of you might not know is that in addition to being, of course, one of the most prominent bankers in the UK or anywhere in the world, Antonio has for many, many years, until fairly recently, combined a career in banking with a career as an academic. Antonio started his career in Portugal both with the Capital Markets Group at Citibank and as an assistant professor at the Universidade Católica Portuguesa. Uh, and in both of those roles, he was able to build on his academic training, particularly at INSEAD, where he took an MBA and won the Henry Ford the second prize for the top student in his year, and later, I think, at the Harvard Business School. And Antonio was just telling me that he taught, I think, for 13 years whilst he was working as a banker, teaching courses on econometrics, amongst many other things. So you can see where the next job offer is going to go from this end. Uh, after Citibank in Portugal, Antonio worked for Goldman Sachs in London and New York before joining Santander in Lisbon in 1993. Uh, within Santander, Mr. Ota Osorio rose through the ranks to be the CEO of Banco Santander Brazil and then CEO of Santander Tota, a position he held until 2011 when he became, as I said, the, the group chief executive uh, of Lloyd's. In June 2009, Antonio was awarded the title, and I told you I would butcher certain words this evening, of Encomienda de Número of Orden de Isabel la Católica <laughs> by His Majesty the King of Spain. I really should be doing this a lot better given that my partner is predominantly a Spanish speaker herself. So we are delighted uh, tonight that we have with us a speaker with huge experience both of banking and the academic world, huge experience on both sides of the Atlantic and of course around the world. So Antonio, we look forward to your presentation on banking and the economy. Thank you.
Well, good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. And um, thank you very much, Professor Corbich, for your very kind introduction. You now must be wondering how many years, how, how, how old I am after 13 years at university <laughs> and 26 in banking, but I'm not going to elaborate on that. <laughs> so um, I thought I would uh, uh, talk for no more than 30 minutes and then have 45 minutes for questions which I think is normally the most interesting part of this debate, if you, if you are willing to ask difficult questions, obviously. And um, the int another interesting thing I would like to mention to you is that uh, I am not only very pleased to be here with you tonight, because LSE is an amazing institution, but the last time uh, I was supposed to be here and I wasn't, I had to cancel my previous speaking engagement here in late 2010 and that was at relatively short notice and the reason why was because in the morning after I was due to speak it was announced I would become group chief executive of Lloyd's <laughs> so I take comfort from the fact that I have been invited back <laughs> to address you this evening and um, I think this suggests that uh, the reasons were well understood at the time <laughs> so I know many of you in the room this evening are students and alumni and uh, you are very privileged, in my opinion, to be associated with such a prestigious university, renowned around the world for its academic and research excellence. And of course, there is its location in the heart of this great city with everything it has to offer. It is a fantastic place to pursue academic studies and interests. I have been fortunate, as you heard, to benefit from, from university education as well. It is 20 or so years since I completed my MBA. It was, as you heard, at a rival institution in SEAD in France, but one that shares many of the characteristics of the LSE. In addition to the academic aspects of my studies, my time at university provided an all-round experience that has helped me throughout my working life. Above all, it gave me the opportunity to engage with and learn from my international classmates. I learned the value of debating and exchanging ideas with people from other cultures, those with different life experiences. I have been able to draw on this throughout my career, a career that has taken me to many different cultures, from Portugal, via France, to the United States, to the UK, to Brazil, and now to the UK for a second time. In my experience of working in these different countries, people are at their best when they listen and learn from each other and then work as a truly effective team in the right direction where the whole is bigger than the sum of the individual parts. It is under these circumstances that companies are able to gain a competitive advantage and achieve great things. For me, the decision to pursue a career in banking was a simple one. Growing up in Portugal, I knew, even from the age of 19, <laughs> that it was the career choice for me, as I really liked both finance and marketing, and I thought that banking was where those two subjects would be mostly valued. Nowadays, it is hard to imagine many teenagers would be quite so intent on embarking on a career in this field a view that has been backed up by recent studies. But despite all of the turmoil 
that the banking industry has been through and even contributed towards or made worse, I'm still proud to call myself a banker today, or to be more specific, a retail and commercial banker. Why? <laughs> because as a retail and commercial banker, I see the significant contribution that banking services can make to people's lives day in, day out. Whether it be helping families to save for and then buy their first home, or building long-term relationships with clients, whether they be large companies, universities, or small and medium-sized enterprises, helping their business to grow and thrive and achieve their ambitions, or facilitating investments in major infrastructure projects, contributing to sustainable economic growth. Banks play a vital role in the economy. The links between banking and the economy are inextricable, and I intend to illustrate to you just why banking and the economy are so important for each other, and that banking is socially useful. I'd like to start by considering the purpose of banks. What are banks for? What function do they serve in the economy? One way to answer these questions is to trace the roots of banking. The first banks were probably religious temples. Since they were well-built, sacred, and constantly guarded, thus deterring would-be thieves, they were perceived to be the safest place to store gold. Records from 4,000 years ago show that temple priests in Babylon made loans to merchants. In ancient Greece, temples as well as private and civic entities conducted financial transactions such as loans, deposits, currency exchange, and validation of coinage. Although banks have clearly moved on over the course of thousands of years, not least the premises in which they are located, we can see that the core purpose of banks remains unchanged. Throughout history, there has been a consistent role for banks as financial intermediators, taking deposits of different maturities, source and complexity, keeping the deposits secure, more recently with a guarantee in case of loss, and transforming the deposits into prudent lending in forms that suit the different needs of customers, whether they be individuals or businesses. In effect, the role of banking in the economy has developed in order to help markets work more efficiently by correcting two market failures. The first is the information asymmetry between savers and borrowers. One of the reasons that individuals and businesses do not lend money directly to one another is that it is very difficult, if not impossible, for individual savers to assess and monitor the credit risk attached to any particular borrower. Banks act as aggregators and intermediaries between savers and borrowers. They know their customers, understand their financial needs, and have the appropriate expertise to measure and manage the risks involved in extending credit to those customers. The second market failure relates to the differing liquidity needs of savers and borrowers. Most depositors want access to their funds immediately or at short notice, but borrowers typically want to borrow over a much longer term, perhaps as long as 25 years. In effect, the university, I heard 
just a moment ago, is doing a, a, a loan for your new building of 30 years. So really very long maturities. Quite understandably, most people want to be able to withdraw their savings whenever they want. And yet, the same people might want to borrow money to buy a property or fund a business idea and pay it back over many years. So a financial intermediary needs to be able to manage the maturity mismatch between their assets and liabilities. Banks mitigate this risk by putting aside reserves in the form of liquid assets to cover the event that they receive unexpected demands to withdraw deposits. At its heart, therefore, banking is about risk management, be it credit risk or liquidity risk. A bank's ability to understand and manage its risks is therefore a key determinant of success and survival. Nowhere was, nowhere was this more clearly demonstrated than in the crisis. It was those banks that managed their risks well pre-crisis that survived and are now best placed to support the, economies, the economy. The banks that survived were those whose culture was about risk management, not sales, who focus on risk-adjusted return, not simply returns, and who exited markets like subprime when the risks grew. The banks who failed were those who felt they needed to carry on dancing whilst the music was still playing, to paraphrase the former chief executive of Citigroup. Banking's role in supporting commerce through good times and bad brings the importance of its economic purpose to the fore. By providing businesses with credit, banks trigger a virtuous circle. Helping businesses to invest and grow creates further employment, which generates wealth and savings for individuals, who in turn will spend more on everyday purchases. And so the cycle continues. It is the virtuous circle, sorry, if the virtuous circle is broken or disrupted, then the consequences for the economy and for businesses and individuals can be considerable. This is exactly the problem we have been experiencing over the last five years. I doubt very much that I need to tell you in this room that this has been a profound period in our economic history, perhaps the most significant since the Great Depression. So I do not intend to devote long to the causes of the crisis this evening, but I do think that understanding the crisis and its causes helps to illustrate how banks can impact the economy and vice versa. Leading up to the financial crisis, the global economy experienced a prolonged period of globalization characterized by outward signs of stability, both in terms of growth and inflation. As Charlie Bean, Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, has pointed out, and you can see in this chart which he produced, the 10-year period immediately prior to the crisis was the most stable for the UK economy for the last 150 years. Yet, the ending of that period of stability was marked by the first run on a UK bank in almost those 150 years. This is because, beneath the surface, the stability during the pre-crisis decade period 
was the result of widening imbalances in the global economy. You can see this by looking at the current account balances as a percentage of world GDP for different countries shown in this slide. These imbalances were driven by what Ben Bernanke described as the global savings glut, an excess of capital in the emerging economies in Asia, in part driven by the reaction to their own financial crisis in the 90s, and the growing surplus of Middle Eastern oil exporters. The global financial system provided the mechanism for capital to flow uphill away from emerging economies, where it ought to have a comparatively high marginal product, to the advanced economies, and in particularly the US, where it probably had a low marginal product. That flow drove risk-free interest rates to very low levels, encouraging investors to move out along the risk curve in search of better yields. And the extraordinary stability of most economies led people to believe that the risks attached to those more speculative investments were low. This process of risk accumulation has best been described by Iman Minsky, an economist whose work on financial business cycles back in the 1980s didn't receive the attention it deserved, but whose name is now more widely known. Minsky foresaw that periods of stability would lead to increasing amounts of risk-taking that would eventually lead economies to tip over into extraordinary instability. Stability breeds instability. Just as was the case for the crisis that led to the Great Depression in the late 1920s and early 1930s, banks have been blamed for the financial crisis. In part, that is fair criticism. As the economy was booming and as businesses and individuals increased their appetite for debt, so many banks adopted unsustainable and risky strategies to meet those demands. In response to the crisis, risk aversion became universal. Households and firms stopped borrowing as people reassessed their financial situation and banks stopped lending and pulled out of some markets as they tried to rebuild their capital. The combined effect of which you see on this slide, causing the debt-to-GDP ratio to fall back. The recession that resulted from this deleveraging caused public sector deficits to widen sharply as tax receipts, tax receipts collapsed and social security payments urged. This has forced many governments into austerity programs with further negative consequences for the economy. Effectively, the public sector is still trying to deliver today. Essentially, the economy is now suffering from what Keynes called the paradox of thrift. When everyone tries to save more, the negative economic consequences make it extremely difficult for anyone to succeed in improving their financial position. For the banking sector, changes in the rules, a result of the crisis, have made their deleveraging challenge much greater. Banks need not just to rebuild their capital, but to achieve much higher levels than in the past.
The new Basel III regime is due to come into effect in Europe from 2014, having been transposed into EU law. It introduces requirements for much higher and better quality bank capital with the aim of improving the ability of banks to absorb losses. Incidentally, the combined legislative text runs to a mere 675 pages. I tell you that just in case some of the more dedicated students here of banking regulation in the room are considering some bad time reading. There has been much analysis in the last five years of the likely economic impacts of higher bank capital requirements. Needless to say, opinions differ. But one thing is very clear. Even in the long run, if, even if in the long run the impact on economic growth of higher capital levels is modest, this is quite clear, the shorter run transitional impacts can be large if banks are required to achieve much higher levels of capital very quickly, as it has been recently observed. As I've suggested already, banks' efforts to scale down their balance sheet do not, however, paint the full picture. A decline in the demand for credit has also played its part. As we know well, confidence in the economy has been very low, meaning that businesses have, for their part, understandably been reluctant to take risks and invest in growth opportunities. The CBI's latest industrial trend survey, shown in this graph, illustrates this point very well. The survey asks businesses to identify the key factors that affect their investment decisions. Top of the list is uncertainty about demand, followed by concerns about insufficient return on investment. Concerns over the lack of availability of finance only ranks fourth. Instead of investing, businesses are opting to put money aside for a rainy day at record levels, as you can see in this slide, which shows corporate sector cash as a percentage of GDP. To give you a flavor of this, total cash reserves held by corporations in the UK are estimated to be around 480 billion pounds, or over 30% of the UK's total output as an economy. That's higher than the pre-crisis level, despite the severe economic downturn since then. Furthermore, we have witnessed a trend for banks, in many cases encouraged by their respective national regulators, to retreat to their domestic markets in order to limit their international exposure and any potential domestic capital shortage. As Mervyn King says, banks are global in life, but domestic in death. So as the IMF's April 2013 Global Financial Stability Report notes, banks are now increasingly aiming to match their assets and liabilities on a country-by-country -country basis. In the UK, a number of foreign banks took the decision to withdraw from the market altogether. Combined with the withdrawal from the market of non-bank lenders, this has led to a notable shrinkage of the credit supply and the corresponding fall in asset prices. Domestic banks have filled some of the credit gap, aided in part by intervention from the government and Bank of England, 
the funding for lending scheme, the FLS, together with the change of liquidity requirements in June 2012, was a prime example of such intervention. It is, in my view, game-changing. Through the scheme, the Bank of England provides banks with funding to lend on to productive sectors of the UK economy. Both the amount of funding and the price we pay to borrow from the central bank is link, linked to our lending performance. So there is an added incentive for banks to lend to business and potential homeowners. For Lloyds, the FLS has enabled us to pass a 1% discount on the cost of lending for the life of the loan to, to small and medium-sized enterprises, the lifeblood of any economy. And it has enabled us to provide additional support to individuals looking to get on the housing ladder for the first time, which is vital for getting the housing market moving again. In turn, this will be of benefit to the wider economy through increased activity in the construction sector, one of the main drivers of employment in this country. Perhaps inevitably, despite these encouraging efforts, the cake itself has shrunk. Overall lending to the economy has declined from its pre-crisis levels. The consequence is that the process of deleveraging in both the private and public sectors is taking longer and having a more depress depressing impact on growth than many had originally thought when the worst of the financial crisis and associated recession had passed. And we should never forget that this has had and is having a dramatic impact on people's lives, both in terms of financial well-being and employment. It is now more than five years since the collapse of Lehman Brothers, arguably the iconic event that marked the onset of the financial crisis. Despite the passage of time, the shock waves from the financial crisis continue to reverberate across the globe today. As we know from research by the IMF, as well as Reinhardt and Rogoff's well-known work, recovering from a financial crisis typically takes much longer than a normal recession due to widespread deleveraging that results. The global economy today remains in the recovery phase and is still vulnerable to shocks, whether it be a failure to agree a deal on the debt ceiling in the US, just solved, as you know, at the 11th hour, a further twist in the Eurozone's sovereign debt crisis, or a marked slowdown in emerging markets. And the imbalances that I discussed earlier between advanced and emerging economies remain wide and are set to narrow only slightly, slightly as the latest IMF forecast shows. Emerging markets have been the main driver of world growth since the crisis. But now there are signs of a weak recovery in some advanced countries. Growth in many emerging markets is slowing. For the UK, there has been a steady, pro a steady, a steady progression of positive data recently, which points to an accelerating pace of economic recovery. The latest GDP figures suggest the UK economy is growing at pace, which prior to the crisis would have been considered a round trend. Annual growth doesn't yet match the typical 3-4% rates that we would, would like to see in a normal recovery. 
nor is it yet sufficient to reduce unemployment significantly. But talk of a double dip has significantly receded. And there are now signs that evidence of recovery is helping build confidence in the economy. The latest Lloyds Bank Business Confidence Bar Barometer shows that businesses are more optimistic about the future of the UK economy today than at any other time in the last 11 years. This improvement in mood is prompting more businesses to consider boosting staff numbers, with 40% saying they are looking to hire, which you can see in this graph. This trend is important because it hints that we are entering a self-sustaining cycle of confidence. Business confidence is so vital to ensure that the UK's economic recovery gains a firmer foothold. Although I personally am optimistic about the prospects for the economy, we should not underestimate the headwinds to the UK's recovery. Among these, I would highlight the continued pressure on consumers' real incomes and the still fragile outlook for the Eurozone. The Eurozone is, in aggregate, has also now started to recover, although so far the recovery is extremely weak and most of the periphery countries remain in recession. Forecasts point to the Eurozone continuing to recover slowly in the remainder of this year and in 2014. Any such recovery is likely to continue to be unbalanced across the zone, reflecting the divergence between the core and periphery countries. Moreover, risks remain from banking and sovereign debt tensions as governments make very slow progress with the reforms necessary to make the Eurozone more stable. Given the importance of the Eurozone for the UK as a trading partner, our biggest trading partner, the risks cannot be ignored. So we continue to assume prudently this will be a slow recovery with our GDP forecasts climbing only gradually above 2% and remaining below the pre-crisis trend for the medium term. For unemployment to fall much further, we need to see economic growth exceed 2 to 2.5% for a prolonged period, especially as the productivity catch-up likely to accompany the recovery will limit employment growth. This in turn means that interest rates will remain low for some time, given the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee's new approach to forward guidance. We expect base rates to remain at current levels, probably until 2016, unless the recovery turns out to be faster. Achieving the higher rate of growth that is needed to reduce unemployment will require the UK economy to tap new drivers of growth. Whilst it is clear that too much lending was made to sectors like commercial real estate pre-crisis, Banks will need to focus on other sectors, including perhaps manufacturing and high technology, if we are to maximize future economic growth and prosperity. So banks have a crucial role to play in supporting the new growth drivers by helping to ensure that sufficient capital gets directed to businesses with the potential to be the most productive and profitable sectors of the economy in the future. For the meantime, the current economic conditions will continue to present 
a challenging economic environment for any business to operate in. But they also present a unique opportunity to change. One thing that is clear from the past five years is that the external environment in which we all operate has changed dramatically. So there is an opportunity to reassess business models and practices for their appropriateness to the emerging new economic environment. The banking industry is no different in this regard. If anything, the opportunity for the interest is even greater. We have an opportunity to undo the damage caused by a persistent erosion of retail banking fundamentals over many years. That means reconnecting with core banking values, shedding the complacency of the past, and achieving much greater efficiency. All this is with the aim of focusing much more on the needs of customers. These are all factors that were neglected by the banks in the run-up to the crisis, which made worse its impact on banks and on the economy. Ultimately, we need to get back to a position whereby retail banking is focused on supporting the economy, ensuring the efficient transmission of payments in the economy, providing a safe and secure home for deposits, and prudently transforming those deposits into lending for individuals and businesses. Retail banks, therefore, need to be dependable and trustworthy so they can foster long-term relationships with their customers. Trust plays a key role in banking. Without it, banks do not function effectively and the virtuous circle I described earlier goes into reverse gear. The Edelman Trust Barometer asked how much respondents trust businesses in each industry to do what is right. The results on this slide show worrying figures with banks ranking second last on trust and financial services, the only sector lower. If, as an industry, we can succeed in this endeavor of rebuilding dependable and trustworthy institutions, then we will be in the best position to play out our full part in supporting a health and growing economy. I am committed to Lloyds playing a leading role in transforming the industry. Announcing our strategy in mid-2011, I said that transforming the bank would be a three to five year journey. Our strategy has been to reshape and simplify our business to be a UK-focused retail and commercial bank with the goal of returning the bank to profitability. Just over two years ago, just over two years on, I believe we are well on our way to delivering a better, simpler, low-risk bank which delivers the products our customers need and the strong performance and sustainable returns our shareholders expect. As the leading retail and commercial bank in the UK, we are focusing, focused on lending to SMEs, which, as I've said, are the lifeblood of the economy. We have accelerated our net lending growth to this crucial part of the economy by 5% in the last year against the market that has contracted by 3%. We have also helped around 65,000 businesses start up and are on track to achieve our commitment 
of 100,000 by the end of the year. At our half-year results, we announced a return to profitability, which was a key factor in the government's decision last month to begin the divestment of its stake in Lloyd's at the profits to the taxpayer, as you saw. I, like many of my colleagues, am quite proud of this achievement. Transforming the bank to the extent that taxpayers would have the opportunity to get their money back from the investment they were compelled to make during the financial crisis was one of the main reasons why I joined Lloyd's. Of course, I am acutely aware of the dangers of becoming complacent. We have made good progress on our journey, but there is still more to do before the bank can be returned to full private ownership, stand on its own two feet, and make a sustained contribution to helping Britain prosper. I began this evening by talking about the importance of universities, such as the LSE. I would like to finish on this same theme. Because the future of the banking industry rests with the next generation of leaders. The current generation of leaders has the task of repairing the damage and rebuilding trusts, something that will take practical deeds, not words, over a sustained period. It is the next generation of industry leaders' responsibility to keep the industry safely on the road and minimize the potential for the further crash. This will require the best and the brightest, and I'm full of confidence that many alumni of the LSE will be instrumental in ensuring that banking makes a positive contribution to society and people's lives. Thank you very much for listening and my willing to take questions. Thank you very much, Antonio. So um, we've got about 35 minutes left for questions. We're going to take them, I think, in groups of three. If you could just say who you are, keep your question fairly short, wait for the microphone to come to you, you'll be first, sir, and then uh, ask your question. First of all, good night. It's, um, it's an honor to be here because as an alumni of LSE and fellow Portuguese, um, uh, I, I couldn't be more honored. Uh, I would be a very short question and selfish question. Is there any solution for Portugal? Do <laughs> <laughs> you really want two others to go with that one? There's a gentleman right next to you, so let's see what that one is. Uh, thank you for speaking to us. Um, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, or at least some hindsight, uh, do you have an opinion on the relative merits of the British and American approaches um, to uh, the banking crisis? Uh, the, the British notably used nationalizations, whereas the Americans used forced recapitalizations. We'll stay on that side first, then we'll come into the middle. So right down by the wall. Thank you. Good evening. Okay, good evening, Antonio. Um, it's an honor to be here as well as an LSE alumni, also a Portuguese speaker. And um, having worked with you, Antonio, about two years ago on the potential sale of the RBS branches to Santander. Um, <laughs> it's a bad memory for the both of us, of course. But I worked under Jennifer Hill, who was your, your counterpart at the time. And uh, obviously, you've moved on to a new role, and I've moved on to a new team myself as well. I was wondering what your thoughts were on whether you, if you had remained with Santander, if the transaction would have 
gone through, and Santander would be a <laughs> proud owner of 300 branches in the UK economy. Thank you. Good question. I'll let you take those three. Then. Okay, so I'll take these three. Let me think about the other. <laughs> so um, I'll start with number two. So British and US. Well, I'm, I'm not that sure that the US and British approach were that different because they basically um, had as a central pillar the recapitalization of the banks. The question was to which extent it could be done privately or it required taxpayer support. If you, if you remember, the US also used taxpayer support given they used TARP, right? And they basically asked the US banks one night around the table to take X amount of billions of dollars and they just had to take it. In the case of the UK, a similar approach was followed, but given the relative size of the problems, in the UK it, mean, it meant nationalization of several banks. In the case of the US, there was no majority ownership of any bank. But I think the approach was not very different. With hindsight, what can I tell you about, about this approach? I do think with hindsight that recapitalizing the banks was absolutely the right thing to do. If you read the press in the UK then, so in 2008, there was a debate whether more money, more capital was necessary, and in the end it was decided to do a 50 billion pounds, the first one, recapitalization, which probably with hindsight it would have been better to do more quickly, because the adjustment would have been quicker. And given that in the US, TARP was used with hindsight again, effectively and in line with the problems. I think the US banks got out of the issues first and they were able to support the US economy first. In the case of the UK, it was only last month with the first privatization of Lloyd's stake that the process really began. So I think with hindsight, the more capital at the time, the better. Obviously, in the case of the UK, there was a big trade-off between scarce resources being allocated from taxpayers into banks. So you have to understand that trade-off. In terms of solutions for Portugal, well, I, I'm quite optimistic that uh, when you look at history, when you look at history, you see the ups and downs of nations, and you have seen you know, the Roman Empire, you know, the Greek Empire, you have seen the Portuguese discoveries, the Spaniards, then the British Empire, the largest in the world in the 19th century. And then you have now the US, the US supremacy, if you want, threatened and very, very shortly, I believe, by, by China re-emerging. So I'm just saying this because I think you have ups and downs through ages. And I think the biggest problem in countries, like in companies, is about complacency, which I refer to my speech several times. So normally success brings, obviously, some pride in what you do but has the risk of people becoming people, companies, countries becoming complacent. And what happened in Portugal, like in Spain, like in Greece, like in the over-indebted countries, was some sort of complacency in the sense we can earn 100, but leave spending 200 forever. And this obviously cannot be done. So what is the solution? Is obviously to live within one's means, but obviously it is to become more productive, because when a country becomes more productive, with the law of comparative advantages, as you know. It can export somewhere else, and exporting somewhere else, employment will grow, and the country will recover. So I, I do think that the biggest adjustment has been done, point one. Point two, there is still a long and painful road ahead 
because to start the virtuous circle of growth and employment takes time and needs to rebuild confidence, but I absolutely think it can be made, as I think it can be made in Spain and as I think it has been made in Ireland, just to give two examples. In terms of the IVS branches, which is the most interesting question, <laughs> I mean, we thought at the time that given that RBS and Lloyds had to sell around 5% of the SME market on one hand and 5% of the retail market on the other, and that the big banks, so the ones with more than a combined 14% market share, were excluded from acquiring those assets according to EU law, it was a unique opportunity for somebody that wanted to buy them because competition would be quite weak. On the other hand, I do believe personally that to build market share significantly on the SME sector is very difficult to do organically because SMEs, given that you have to really know the customers, be present close to them in the communities, really understand their needs, takes a long time. So that was the basis of the transaction. As you probably know uh, from uh, what happened afterwards, there were significant IT issues in matching the two companies. And uh, I think on, on both ends, as it was quite public. And therefore, apparently, the costs of overcoming those IT issues were more important as assessed by the two companies than trying to overcome those. So uh, I am sorry about that, but I am quite, quite, uh, quite uh, happy that we, in the meantime we were able to divest uh, TSB, which is now a standalone bank. So TSB is now on the high street. You have another offer that you can choose from. So competition has increased on the retail sector, and we are quite, uh, quite proud that IT-wise we were able to complete that very difficult deal. <laughs> So maybe we can have some more questions. <laughs> we'll go to this side of this room, uh, lady at the front, gentleman yes. behind her, and then you, sir, those three. Uh, good evening, sir. Uh, my name is Sana. My name is Sana Musharraf, and I'm originally from Pakistan. I'm here a student at the moment. My question to you is, uh, when you were emphasizing on retail or commercial banking, um, I... Uh, after the crisis, my question would be, has the world grown to be more mercantilist again? Because when you were talking of a trust deficit, and uh, in order to create value addition within an economy or any economy, and now the global economy is deeply interlinked, maybe much more than it was before, maybe a century ago. Um, do you still... I mean, in your, this is just a very vague or broad question to you, sir, because you are well aware of the capital markets, how they are functioning. Um, has the world become more entrenched now with a lack of trust or trust deficit, or where is the, where is the capital market flowing now? Uh, the, um, this is something which I would like to learn from your wisdom, sir. Thank you. Thank you. This gentleman right behind. Hi, thanks. I'm uh, Joel Sass, a recent graduate from the LSE. Uh, my question is on capital requirements. Uh, the financial crisis clearly showed that banks held far too little capital and, and funded their operations far too much from debt. Um, leaving aside the, the question of timing for higher capital requirements, what, what is the level, the level you think banks should be holding of capital? Thanks. Thank you. And then about three rows behind you, the gentleman with the beige sweater. Uh, good evening, sir. 
Um, I too actually worked uh, with you for the last two years. Um, <laughs> with uh, under Ben Davies team. <laughs> <laughs> under Ben Davies team at Barclays. Um, my question is a slightly different, uh, more specific to Lloyd's. Um, after the divestment strategy, you know, and focusing on the core becomes realized, you know, after Scottish Widows, St. James's, international operations are divested, what's the next step? Does Lloyd start an acquisition strategy to grow, as you said, or does it then move back into some of the more regional markets where it originally divested from? Okay. Right. Thank you very much for those three additional questions. So taking them in order. Your, your question is very interesting because, as I was saying previously, I mean, trade is one of the biggest engines of growth in the world. I mean, you have innovations, you have increasing productivity, and you have basically trade. Because even if a country is very bad, and I can think of a few, it, it always has a relative comparative advantage of trading with the others. So you know that is one of the basic economic principles. And therefore, as the economies are becoming more globalized, as you said, especially pre-crisis, and you have global chains in terms of production chains in different countries around the world, trade was absolutely the, the benchmark. You are, very, you are absolutely correct that what, with what's happening with the capital markets and with the capital requirements, I will come back to in question two, you have been having a force for banks, as I said in my speech, to match locally their assets and liabilities and therefore to retrench to their local markets and retrench from international, which can be counterproductive, not only in terms of trade, but in, in many dimensions. So that is a serious problem. It is happening. If you look at all the statistics, like the ones I quoted, banks are retrenching locally on their own strategies, and the regulators are asking them to concentrate the capital in their home markets, therefore leaving less capital for their global businesses, given that the diversification of the global position enabled them to have less capital at the top because of diversification. But then if every regulator in every country asks the capital to be there, the sum of the parts is bigger than the total. So you have a serious issue here, both in terms of support to trade, and it has to be seen exactly how the Basel application to trade finance is going to come out in the details, but also in terms of the potential balkanization of capital, which I'll refer a bit more on, on question two. You are absolutely right. Nevertheless, trade has recovered a lot since 2008, 2009, and I think it will continue to improve, although I think that the crisis showed that to have, for example, on the automotive industry, the supply chains around the world, when you had uh, problems like uh, interruption of the chain with a tsunami in Japan and others, that there were risks that people were not totally considering. So my basic answer to you would be significant risks, but trade is improving. I think we have, as a, as a society as a, as a whole, to try to push these barriers down again, because trade is one of the most important sources of wealth creation.
Well, in terms of the capital markets specifically, as banks retrench, there is a bigger opportunity for you to issue securities that investors buy directly. So if you are referring to the capital markets in that specific dimension, there is a big opportunity that opens up in terms of capital markets. Of course, for that to happen, you, you'll take some time because one of, the, one of the basic reasons why the capital markets are much more developed in the US than they are in Europe, for example, or in Asia, is because most companies do not have a rating and rely on bank financing. So for you to change that, you have to allow companies to change their mentality, enable them to have a rating, and this is a process that takes time. But I would, I would tell you that over the next five to 10 years, I think banks will continue to retrench, capital markets opportunities will probably increase, it will take time given this process, and probably the securities will be more expensive given these barriers that we are mentioning and less bank financing available. That's how I see it. In terms of question two about the timing of capital requirements and what level do I think that they should be, there is no magic bullet in terms of, of amount for, for one simple reason. First, for two, for two reasons. First, because capital requirements should not be seen in isolation. Financial stability, which has to be balanced with the credit flow to the economy, as I mentioned to you. So financial stability protects taxpayers' deposits, protects deposits and taxpayers of having to bail out any bank again. But if you, are, if you, are, if you go too much on that direction, you have an impact on the short term in the flow of credit to the economy. So you have to balance financial stability with the credit flow to the economy. Financial stability itself is not only higher capital requirements. I think it is a combination of four pillars, which is capital requirements, liquidity requirements, like the liquidity buffers I mentioned to you, a stricter and more assertive supervision, and recovery and resolution mechanisms. Because if you have a bank being totally resolvable, you don't need as much capital or liquidity as you would otherwise require. So you have to see the financial stability solution as a holistic solution. And I would add that it depends on the country as well. Because in the UK, for example, given that the UK now has the highest capital levels in Europe, it has now recovery and resolution mechanisms in law. And ring fencing will be added soon. And the supervisors are much more stringent in their approach. So you have those three pillars very strong on a relative basis. I would argue that liquidity requirements could be relaxed as they were last year and also because the UK is still an economy where, where loans are much bigger than deposits. So paradoxically, if you increase liquidity requirements, you increase the contagion probability of the UK given it needs foreign financing. So it was absolutely the right thing to do as the Bank of England did last year to relax the liquidity rules as the financial stability holistic solution got much more robust. And finally, second, third point, capital also depends, for everything else set risparibus is the same, capital also depends on your business model. A low risk business model, like I think is the case of Lloyd's, should require less capital than a high risk business model, i.e. not to precise banks, uh, a UK focused bank, AAA country, with retail and SME loans, low volatility of revenues, should have lower capital requirements than 
a bank present in Africa or in triple B or double B countries with highly volatile trading revenues, just to give an example. So you have to also to adapt the capital requirements to the business model of the bank in question. Having said these three points, the direction of capital is clearly up. <laughs> and we have to take that into consideration in our own strategies, like we are in the case of Lloyds. When we presented the strategy two years ago, we said then, then we were aiming to have at least 10.5% of court year one capital. And then ring-fenced banks were later asked to have 10%. And I now, I now think that the level of capital should be around 11, so very similar to what I have said two years ago. But you have to have direction clear in order to adapt the bank strategy ex ante, because if you don't, then the impact on your clients as you start to try to adjust late is very significant. Final question. Lloyd's next steps, have we been selling to them buy again? <laughs> That's what you asked. <laughs> I'm just paraphrasing what you said. Lloyd's strategy is very clear. We are going to be a UK-focused retail and SME bank with two, with two key competitive advantages. The lowest cost structure of the sector, which we already have, we have a 52% cost to income when the sector is between 56 and 65, and we will trend towards 45 in the next three years. That is a critical competitive advantage because in retail, which is a sector where products are easily imitable, it is crucial to have the lower cost of the sector in order to provide better value for money for our customers and therefore being able to share the cost savings between customers and investors. First competitive advantage. And the second one, which is in line with question two, is I think we'll have one of the lowest cost of equities of any bank in the world because we are only present in AAA rated countries, 95% UK. We have a low risk business model because we are retail and SME focused. Number three, we have the lowest cost of the sector. So when you have a lower operating leverage, you have a lower beta, therefore a lower cost of equity. We have now half the wholesale funding we had two years ago. So lower financial leverage, lower beta, lower cost of equity. And fifth and last, we had 200 billion pounds of non-core toxic assets, which are now reduced to around 70, and therefore lower risk, lower beta, lower cost of equity. All these five points combined should have an impact on Lloyd's cost of equity being lower than 10% in the next two, three years. And therefore, it should be a competitive advantage to higher risk business models of international or investment banks. Those are the two competitive advantages. What are we going to do in terms of customer strategy and operating strategy. So we have to finalize shedding the toxic assets we still have, which are quite, now quite, quite small. But then, contrary to what most people think, Lloyd's is not a very big bank in all segments of the UK. While we have 25% market share in mortgages, current accounts and savings, we have only half that market share in seven or eight other products, such as personal loans, such as credit cards, such as insurance, such as asset management, and products for SMEs and mid-corps. So the competitive advantage of having a lower cost strategy will enable us to increase market share over time on these products where we have only the market share that we have on the others, while we have the relationship with the customers. That is where Lloyd's is going to grow. 
over time progressively because gaining market share is quite difficult to do properly. If you gain half a percent a year and we are only half the market share, we can grow for many years. <laughs> this side of the, yeah, right at the back there with a sort of pink yeah. scarf, I think. Just wait for the mic to come and then come down here. And then we'll go to that side for the last round. So right in the middle of the, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Even though I'm a recent uh, LSE graduate, I'm not your former employee and I'm not Portuguese speaker, sorry. <laughs> I have a pretty straightforward question uh, concerning UK government's help to buy mortgage guarantee scheme. Uh, Can you speak, Can you speak up a little I, I bit? To, We're finding uh, it difficult. So, sorry, I'll speak up. Um, uh, my question uh, concerning, uh, concerns your uh, involvement uh, in the UK government's help to buy mortgage guarantee scheme. You're one of uh, the most prominent players in this uh, program, as I understand, and this program is uh, heavily treated by mass media as really, really high-risk program. How mm. does this match uh, with uh, your steadily low-risk development program? Thank you. Right. We're going to come right down the front here to a gentleman that I know and perhaps hasn't worked for you, uh, <laughs> Neil Gaskell, and then the gentleman to his left. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, Neil Gaskell, a former alumni um, uh, in, in an era when uh, global banking hadn't even started because electronics wasn't really working, but now a governor of LSE. So uh, I'd like to ask a question of you really about the... Um, the risk <coughs> management processes in the banks and to what extent you think or you agree with many of the regulators and some commentators that the remuneration processes within the banks contributed significantly to the risk, uh, the difficulty of risk management and the, the character of risk taking. I suppose, I think you can probably comment on this more objectively than others simply because I suspect it doesn't apply as much with Lloyds as with the, to the industry as a whole. The second part of that question is, let's assume that you agree with that and that there is a factor and you could change the labour market somehow magically uh, within the banking system. What would you want to change most importantly in the, in the labour market to help that pattern? Neil, could you just pass it? Yes, thank you. Shankar Patel, I'm an ex-alumni and um, CEO and owner of a mid-corporate company, Banking with Lloyds in part. What's your view on the effects of the QE being decoupled? Um, that's a major concern for a lot of mid-corporate and SME um, who have been surviving on historically low interest rates. And we'd really love to find out what, uh, what your esteemed view is on interest rates potentially increasing or the, uh, the tap being turned off. I think this probably will be the last round of questions. Is there anyone on this side that wants... Yes, I think you were the first, so with the beard. Yes. Hello, good evening, uh, Mr. Orta. Sorry, uh, pleasure to be here. Um, basically, my question is, with the growth of online banking and the progressive disappearance of physical money in the daily transactions of both individuals and businesses, are you expecting to see any significant changes in the way retail ba banking is conducted as um, barriers of entry uh, go down and more um, players can be uh, seen in the market. Thank you. <coughs> okay, let me take them in order. 
help to buy it. Another game changer, by the way. Look, you have to understand this type of articles in the press, and I think LEC is probably one of the best forums to discuss this, on the merits of the issues and on the numbers, and you should look at the facts. And the facts are quite clear. Um, banks are not lending, in terms of mortgages, above 80% LTVs. So while pre-crisis, you know, people went up to 120%, obviously excessive. Now, probably the pendulum swung to the other way, and most banks, the big majority of banks, lends up to 80%. And the interesting thing is, two things. First, many clients that want to buy their first home and only, only have 5 to 10% deposits, they can pay and meet their monthly commitments in terms of the mortgage payments, and you should know that those payments are stretched both in terms of the SVR, so the standard variable rates that they will pay at the end of the introductory period, and in terms of a 2% discrete increase on the base rate, so they can meet those monthly payments easily, I would say, between brackets, but they don't have the deposits. So it is a real issue in terms of not the price of the credits, but in terms of the availability of the products. First point. Second point, before the scheme was announced, while the additional credit loss of the banks across the cycle on a 95% mortgage versus a 75% one was only 40 basis points, so if a bank lent 95% LTV instead of 75, it would, cost, it would cost the bank across the cycle 40 basis points more per year in terms of costs. The difference in price pre the announcement of the scheme was, you know how much? 150 basis points. I.e., there was a clear market anomaly because as you know, according to modern economic theory, the marginal cost and the marginal revenue should meet in a competitive market. So, I do believe that when you have a market anomaly, then there is a case for the government to intervene with a temporary scheme, point one. And point two, I do think that helping first-time buyers access the housing ladder is so important for them, number one, and for revitalizing the construction sector, number two, through the new build that it will produce and the virtue circle thereafter, were critical points to make this scheme. Having said that, and I have also commented on that publicly, I think now that you create, that you unwind the bottleneck on demands, you should, you should also join the discussion and center the discussion on the supply side. And you have to have an easing of the building permits, an easing of the planning restrictions, and also a bigger focus on social housing, affordable housing, which is a big problem in the UK. If you do that, I significantly, I absolutely believe that you'll have an increase in transactions, you'll have prices recovering in line with inflation over the medium term, and you'll have a significant boost through the, to the economy because the construction sector is the biggest sector in terms of employment in the country. So that is the reason why I have um, supported the scheme. I don't know if you know, just as an anecdote, but there are countries in the world, such as Canada, when every mortgage above 75%
has to have compulsory a government guarantee, compulsorily, which is quite interesting as well. Following question, risk management and the impact of remuneration. I do believe that remuneration has had an impact because like anything in life, incentives, as the word indicates, are powerful drivers of human behavior, but I do think they are only a point among four. And the four are, first, you can have the right incentives if you have the wrong strategy, i.e. if you have a non-customer focused strategy, you will not go anywhere. So first, you have to have a customer-centered strategy. Number two, you have to have the right values and the example from the top in terms of behavior in the bank, i.e. being really customer oriented and giving the example from the top. Number three, you also have to have the right product design at the top because if you have the right strategy, right behaviors, but you leave product development very low in the organization, products may be developed that are not the right products for customer needs. So I think product development has to be escalated and all product approvals, like we do in Lloyd's now, have a sign-up at executive committee level in order for them to see the global picture and have products that really meet customer needs. And then you need to have, obviously, remuneration and incentives because you can have the right strategy, right examples, right products, wrong incentives, and then you missell. So one point, very important, but out of four. Second, you said, how would I change it or what do I think is the right thing for remuneration on that specific point? I do think the most important thing on remuneration is that it is based on merit, so obviously better results should lead in a capitalist world, which I think is the right world, to better remuneration. But that remuneration should be long-term paid the higher you are in the organization so that the decisions you take and their consequences are matched by the cycle of your remuneration. They should be paid in shares, most of it, so that you also see the impacts on the company's performance on, on the decisions that you did that are paid in the remuneration. And number three, most important one, if you pay mostly in shares and if you pay across a long period of time, there should be the possibility of clawing back the remuneration if the results of the actions of management are proved to be wrong and you have a penalty for customers or for shareholders. Most of that has already been implemented in the UK and I support that, that view. In relation to question nine, QE, what to do? To QE or not QE? Right. <laughs> uh, I think that um, you should take into consideration that interest rates are abnormally low, especially when you consider the long-term interest rate curve. So to have 20-year Treasury bill at around 3% is historically very low in a UK context where inflation has rarely been below 3%. So my recommendation, but this is not advice, <laughs> is that if companies can, they should have longer term funding with the rates at, set at the long, with the long term curve because on a 10, 15 year view, I think most likely the curve will move upwards. Having said that, and this is why it's difficult, this topic, 
I absolutely believe that the Bank of England's forward guidance is a very important point to take into consideration. And therefore, on the short term, on a three-year view, the market is believing on the interest rate curve that rates will rise before 16, and I think it's quite dangerous to try to play against the central bank. So on the very, very short term, my view is that rates will probably not increase in the next at least two years. But on a very long-term view, I think the level of interest rates, given they are now low for over five years, people have got used to too low interest rates. This looks like a politician speaking, I'm sorry. <laughs> Final question, retail banking changes. Is the model going to change? Are barriers going to come down? Well, I think retail banking is going and will have to go through very significant changes, especially when you look at the outlook in terms of three main trends. The first main trend is interest rates for the foreseeable short-term future, so already for five years, and at least for three or four or five more, interest rates will probably be lower than banks have been used to, and therefore the rate of return that banks, retail banks get from their site deposits that do not yield much money to customers, because it's a convenience product, but that in aggregate banks can use to get some interest on, those levels will be lower for longer. So you have a pressure on profitability, point one. Second, the economy is going to recover, clearly, but as I said, it's going to be a slow and difficult recovery because the economy has, at the same time, has to deleverage. So again, if that is the case, there is another pressure to lower costs because first, interest rates are low, you have to be more efficient. Second, people's disposable incomes are more squeezed. Banks have to lower costs to provide, as I told you, better value for money. And third, these are the three big trends. I do think that the regulatory agenda in terms of the financial conduct authority, in terms of treating customers fairly, is absolutely leading, leading in Europe and it will continue in the UK and throughout Europe. So, in summary, if you believe on these three trends, the critical strategic response a retail bank should adopt, in my opinion, is, as I told you, to absolutely drive the cost structure down, simplifying the bank from the customer's perspective. And as the customer's perspective, simplification of the bank drives costs down, retail banks will progressively be able to offer better value for money and therefore meet these three big trends, which I think are going to be critically important going forward. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be with you. Very warm applause. Could I just ask you please just to sit still and let Antonio go first. He's got another commitment. But before we do that, I'd just like to vote uh, some thanks. First of all, uh, to LSE Public Events for putting on tonight's event. I think it's been a very unusual one. We have the best public events program in the world. I've regularly said that. But it's been much more intimate tonight, much more part of the LSE community. I'm proud of the fact that we're open to the public usually, but I think tonight's had a very nice feel about it. Thank you to the audience, secondly, for coming. Thank you very much. Most of all, though, Antonio, I'd like to say thank you very much, not just for your talk, which was interesting, but I thought that you engaged absolutely directly with all the questions that you were asked tonight. 
that you dealt with all the questions analytically and you behaved absolutely not like a politician, but much more like an academic. So thank you very much for being with us tonight.